Good morning again and welcome. We are continuing with and in fact concluding uh, this morning our study of the life of Joseph and with that our study of the book of Genesis which we have tackled in four different parts coming back to it uh, different sections periodically over the past six years I think. Um, I cannot speak for you, but it has been for me a great time of learning and challenge and some growth. Um, I hope that by God's grace you'll have experienced at least some of those things yourself. Uh, as far as where we'll be going next, I'm hoping to begin a series on Paul's letter to the Romans in about three to four weeks. So if you're engaged in daily Bible readings, you may want to spend some time looking at that very important book of the Bible and asking God to prepare you to receive the good things He has for us there. And uh, you can pray for me, as I've never in my life preached a sermon on the, uh, from the book of Romans. So uh, I'm entering into this with a lot of fear and trembling and a great deal of self-doubt. So you can pray for me there. Um, back to Genesis. In the past few weeks, we've covered a lot of ground. We've seen Joseph's reconciliation with his brothers... And then his reunion with his father. Following that, we looked at the relocation of the entire family, clan of Jacob, from Canaan to Egypt. And then last week, we saw Joseph's administration of the great famine that God had used him to foretell, as well as Jacob's adoption of and blessing of Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. The passage before us this morning picks up with all of that and has... What I see really three main parts. Firstly, there is a continuation of the blessing theme as Jacob, near the end now, moves from pronouncing blessing upon Joseph's sons to gathering all of his own sons and going through a sort of long corporate blessing upon them. After that, there are two sets of burial instructions and deaths. The first one involving Jacob, the second one involving Joseph. Sandwiched in the midst of this second set of events, there is one last brief exchange between Joseph and his brothers that wraps up the account of Joseph and at the same time uh, puts in place, I think, the necessary theological perspective for reading and making sense of what is about to happen next in the book of Exodus. That's what's in front of us today before we take a last and completely inadequate look at that. Let's pray together. Father, please use this time for your good in the lives of your people. Please apply these truths to us as only you can do. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, who is the teacher always. And we pray for that effective work that will make us more like you, more like your Son. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, while the record of Jacob's blessing upon his sons is fairly extensive, you might note in the, uh, the church bulletin today that we don't actually have the whole passage from 49.1 through. Uh, it was too long, but also I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this first part. Um, 
The reason for that is simply the fact that a lot of what's written in this first section is fairly cryptic. Um, it's got a lot of references uh, that are obscure at best, and which um, I have no doubt made a lot of sense to Jacob and his sons at the time. Uh, but they are quite difficult for us to make heads or tails of from where we stand today. But there's, there are some things in there worth noting. Um, not all of it's impossible to understand. For instance, what Jacob says about Reuben, and by Reuben, the passage has in view ultimately Reuben's descendants at some distant point in the future. But what Jacob says in Genesis 49, 3-4 about Reuben seems clear enough for the most part. After acknowledging several things that were true about Reuben as his firstborn, and which should have resulted and actually would have resulted in he and his descendants receiving the special blessing reserved for the firstborn, uh, Jacob goes on to explain why he didn't receive that blessing, because he had defiled his father's marriage bed. Now, if you were with us when we studied about that in the Life and Times of Jacob, previous series, a little while ago now, you might remember this. You might remember how at one point Reuben slept with one of his father's servant wives, uh, Bilhah, I think, probably as an attempt to assert his position as eldest, that is to stake his claim, so to speak, as heir apparent. Whatever he was thinking, though, if he was thinking at all, it was wrong, it was stupid, it was hurtful. It was all those things. And if you're with us for that series, you may remember how, at the time, Jacob said and did nothing in response to Reuben's actions, even though he knew about it. Well, Jacob maintained his silence on that issue for many, many years, apparently. Indeed, it is not until just now, during the last few moments of his life, where Jacob finally reveals to Reuben that he did, in fact, know what had happened and had known about it all along. At the same time, he here reveals what the consequences of that were for Reuben, that is, his birthright had been forfeited and, as we saw last week, transferred to Joseph's sons. Now Reuben hasn't lost everything. I mean, he's still a son of Jacob. His descendants are still going to inherit a portion of the promised land. But clearly he's chastened here. Clearly he's lost something. That's one part of this blessing that we can understand, this first section here, to a degree. Another thing we can make some sense of is Jacob's words directed at his son Judah in uh, chapter 49, verses 8 to 12. Jacob's words about this son seem to be a mixture of two different visions concerning the future of Judah's descendants. On the one hand, up through about verse 10, we get this clear signal that Judah's tribe is going to be a tribe of leaders and rulers. We see this borne out much later on in Israel's history in the persons of David and Solomon. But then about midway through verse 10, there seems to be a change. Uh, another vision, even further in the future than kings David and Solomon. The indicator found in the second half of verse 10 is found in the second half of verse 10 where the ESV translated at, it translates it as until tribute comes to him. That is a possible translation, but most other translations have retained the Hebrew word Shiloh at this point. In other words, they've taken the view that the verse here seems to indicate the coming of a person until Shiloh comes to him. And um, 
rather than a, a person rather than a thing. Now, we don't have any other reference to that person in Scripture, but given the language used here, given what we know of Judah's heritage anyway, it's possible that this is a prophetic reference to Christ. That's not for certain, so the most we can say about that is maybe. At any rate, the point is we can make sense of some things in this first section, like those comments about Reuben and Judah, or at least parts of them, and then later on about Joseph. But there are other statements made, other projections given about other sons that are both obscure and even surprising in some ways. For instance, verse 21 about Naphtali. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Okay. Uh, What in the world does that mean? I have no idea. No one else seems to know either. It is a mystery. Uh, Then there's this one about Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and at evening dividing the spoil. While there's a little more to work with there, it's still obscure, and what's more, it's kind of surprising, especially since this is a son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, when you, see that Jacob, when you see what he says about Joseph, which is another more fairly understandable section, as I said, but you compare that to what he says about Benjamin, about whom he was so protective for so many years, it's a little surprising. So it's an interesting section of Genesis, to say the least. We get a mixture of statements. Some are longer, some are brief, some fairly clear, others very difficult to understand what they could be referring to. And the other thing that is mixed about these pronouncements is that they seem to be illustrations of both the justice of God and his mercy. For example, with Reuben, we see the outworking of the consequences of his own sin and failure. God's pronouncements upon him, as given through Jacob, they're not unfair. They're not harsh. They're simply a response of justice meted out by a holy God. At the same time, when you get to the person of Judah, you get another dynamic. I mean, with Judah, some pretty impressive, gracious pronouncements are made, and this in spite of the fact that this is a man who slept with temple prostitutes, including unknowingly his own daughter-in-law. His daughter-in-law, if you remember, disguised herself to try and force Judah's hand on an issue because he'd wronged her by not fulfilling his obligations when two of her husbands, Judah's sons, died in rapid succession. At any rate, this is the guy who, although God might have justly made a more harsh pronouncement about his future, as he did with Reuben, nevertheless, God in his sovereignty chooses to be merciful to Judah and his descendants. In short, the way these um, pronouncements work out these blessings, it reveals, I think, the sovereignty of God in a pretty clear way. A God who reveals some things, but not everything. A God who reserves for himself the right to dispense justice when he will and mercy when he will. And he can do that because he's God. And this whole blessing is a picture of that. And even though these blessings are listed out here are not universally positive in every instance, the overall message here, the corporate message conveyed by Jacob's pronouncements, is positive in that it clearly reveals God's plan to continue to bless Abraham's descendants, as he promised, even though 
God also still, still feels the freedom to administer discipline to his wayward children underneath this umbrella of grace and mercy. So that's the beginning section. Let's move on from there. Let me read to you uh, from Genesis 49, starting at verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I'm to be gathered to my people. It's a great phrase. I'm to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, where Abraham bought, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face, and he wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed, uh, sorry, Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land uh, of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I'll return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there uh, went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the morning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous morning by the Egyptians, and therefore the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone with him to bury his father. After giving these last words to his sons, these blessings that we heard about, Jacob reissues his burial instructions, this time including a little more detail. But he essentially uh, is simply saying to them that he wants them to bury him in the same place where Abraham and his wife Sarah and Isaac and his wife Rebecca and Leah are buried. It's the family plot inside a cave within the land of Canaan, the land of promise. As we saw last week, this instruction was, among other things, a declaration of faith on Jacob's part. It was a demonstration of his complete 
confidence that God would fulfill his promises to his people. And that one day, this burial site would be surrounded by the evidence of God's faithfulness, with the people of Israel spread out all around it. Following these instructions, Jacob dies, and a time of mourning and preparation for burial ensues. And both of these events, it would seem, were very much influenced by the context, with Jacob being embalmed in the particular manner that the Egyptians did these things, and even with his being mourned, not only by his own family, but also in a sort of official way by the people of Egypt. Uh, It seems to have been something very much along the lines of what you might see today in a state funeral, flags at half-mast, that sort of thing. Interestingly, the length of time for the official mourning for Jacob was 70 days, which is only two days less than the time set to mourn the death of Pharaoh, as commentators tell us. In other words, it was a gesture of honor and respect on the part of the Egyptians to mourn Joseph's father for such a long time. Well, following this, after the time of official mourning and preparation, Uh, After all that's over, Joseph goes to formally request permission to leave Egypt in order that he might be able to bury his father. Of course, Pharaoh gladly approves this request to go and make the burial, but he does more than that. He sends an official contingency of representatives from Egypt as Joseph's escort, and again, in honor of Joseph's father. And so they leave, and after stopping along the way for a further period of mourning, the burial takes place, and they return. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Once everyone's returned to Egypt, after all of the events associated with Jacob's death and burial have passed, there's this sudden and slightly unexpected twist in the story right here at the end. I mean, apparently, Joseph's brothers have been thinking, or at least one of them has been thinking, and and judging from what's written here, it must have gone something like this. What if all this kindness and grace that we've been shown, what if all of this seeming generosity on Joseph's part has only been done for the sake of our father? What if it had nothing to do with us? What if out of respect for our father and out of a desire not to cause him any more grief than he's already had, what if Joseph has just been waiting, biding his time until our father passed, and then at, at that point he would carry out an act of revenge that he'd long contemplated? What if that is true? 
Whatever the exact course of their thoughts, it seems to have been along those lines. And so out of fear, they bring a report. Whether it's a true report, we don't know. Probably not, is my guess. But they bring a report of something that Jacob had told them to share with Joseph upon his death. And the report was essentially of Jacob's requesting that Joseph not hold their sins against him. Well, on receiving this report, Joseph just breaks down again. He begins to weep, and the reason for his tears is, I believe, just his sadness that his brothers are thinking these things. Sadness over the fact that they still have not fully accepted the reality that he really has forgiven them. He really meant it. And so Joseph calls his brothers together to try and convince them once for all that his forgiveness of them is real. That his compassion and love for them is genuine. And that's where he utters those well-known words that are just, just read to you. But I'll read them again. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph here assures his brothers of two things. Firstly, he calls a spade a spade. He tells them that their actions toward him were evil. He doesn't sugarcoat it in any way. He doesn't minimize what they did. It was wrong. It was horrible. It was evil. Joseph says so. However, Joseph also says this. It was God. It was what? God wanted. What you wanted was to hurt me, to destroy me, to be rid of me, to never have anything to do with me again. But what God wanted was something else. And He used your evil actions, He used your hatred, He used your evil intentions to put me into this situation to bring about good things, to save many, many people, including your own families, your own children. And so it is that we come to, I think, the pinnacle of this truth that we've seen highlighted at different points along the way through this series. We see the staggering truth that God can and He does have the ability to take and use the worst plans and intentions of men and women. And to bring those awful things into the service of his kingdom and his purposes. You want another example of that? Crucify him. Crucify him. Give us Barabbas. Let him go. But Jesus, kill him. What was that? Well, that was God's will. It was God working just as he did through Joseph's brothers, using the evil intentions of people to put his son, his only son, on a cross so that he could die for sins he did not commit and all in order that he might secure on that cross complete and permanent forgiveness for the very people that put him there. 
might be thinking, that's crazy. It's not crazy. It's God. It is God doing what only he can do. Creating a masterpiece out of an absolute mess. And just so you know, he's not through yet. Not finished yet. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mashir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones from here. Carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Joseph, like his father, lived to a good old age, not quite as long, but a good old age. He had the privilege of seeing his great-grandchildren grow up. When he neared the time of his own departure, he too, like Jacob, issued some special specific instructions regarding his own death and burial. And interestingly, and unlike the instructions that Jacob gave, Joseph does not tell them to carry him off to the land of Canaan to be buried. Not yet, at least. He wants them to wait just a little bit. He wants them to wait until God visits them and brings them out of the land, which is going to be in about 400 years. Then they could do it. The question is, why doesn't Joseph follow his father's example? Why doesn't he ask his family to do the same thing with him? Does he not have the same faith and confidence as Jacob? I think he does. I think that Joseph's wisdom shines through here again. And there's at least two reasons I believe his wanting to be buried initially in the land of Egypt. First reason I think is pretty practical. I suspect Joseph knew that by allowing his grave to remain there with all the elaborateness that was attached to it, he would be doing a great service to his own people. I mean, think about it. If Pharaoh went all out in burying Joseph's father... What sort of funeral do you think Joseph himself got? He was Pharaoh's right-hand man. He was second in charge, a man whose instructions were received and acted on as if Pharaoh himself had issued them. It would have been an extremely elaborate funeral with all sorts of mourning and official actions. He would very likely have been buried in some prominent tomb. It would have been like a, a public monument, like the Lincoln Memorial or something. Whatever form it took, it would have been something that served as this semi-permanent reminder to the Egyptian people of all that Joseph had done for them. Of all that this foreigner, this Hebrew, had accomplished in securing the preservation of their country. 
And in turn, this, I think, would have slowed the development of the Egyptian disdain for God's people. Quite some time. Eventually, it'll get really bad. But I think in Joseph's wisdom here, he put the brakes on it. When you read the book of Exodus, it becomes clear that after a while, the Egyptians really did hate the Hebrew people. Again, I think this slowed it down. That's a possible practical reason for his burial instructions. But another reason, I think a far more important reason, is so that his memorial, his tomb, would serve for the Hebrew people, for his own people, as a reminder of unfinished business. Because Joseph didn't say to his family, bury me here. He told them, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. It's as as if he was saying, that thing we did with my father, Jacob, that trip to the promised land, that was a dress rehearsal. It's a dress rehearsal. You know, it's still the case... Uh, usually out in more rural areas, but it's still the case that there are many country churches that have right next to them a graveyard, a cemetery. And I've driven past many, many of these over the years. And I used to think for most of my life as I drove past them uh, or stopped to visit or occasionally preached at some of these churches, but I used to think to myself, well, that's a cheery sight, isn't it? That's something to look at every time you walk out the church door. And you look over and you see these rows of tombstones and you think, how morbid is that? That's what I used to think because I'm an idiot. But you know what I think now? Look at it now. Unfinished business. That's what I think. Unfinished business business. That's what they are. That's the message of Joseph's burial. It's unfinished business. That's still the message of every believer's burial. Everyone. Everyone who dies in the Lord. Every son, every daughter, every father, mother, grandfather, grandmother, It's unfinished business. Every tombstone of every believer shouts this message. This is not over. We are not done here. Praise God. Because the Lord Jesus did finish what he came to finish. Because of that, his resurrection is only the first of more to follow. It's a preview of coming attractions. I'll leave you with these words from 1 Thessalonians, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive 
who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, record of the life of one of your servants. Thank you for preserving it for us. And even though it's just a, a fraction of everything that happened in Joseph's life, it's enough of a fraction to point us to the Lord Jesus over and over again and to the power of the gospel and to the hope that we have because of Christ. The hope that is there in the burial instructions of two of our brothers, Jacob and Joseph, whom we very much look forward to meeting one day. We thank you that we have that hope and we have it in you because of your son and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Those who are taking up the morning offering will come collect that at this time.